it's 2.22 in the morning. 2.22 a.m. And this is the fourth air raid siren of the day. February 24th, 2024, this past Saturday, marked two years since Vladimir Putin officially declared war against Ukraine after a failed assassination of President Vladimir Zelensky. That morning, around 4 a.m., crews and ballistic missiles rained down in Kiev and all across Ukraine. Bombers, warships, submarines. It has now been 730 days of war. But let's be honest with ourselves. The real number is 3,650 days, when Russia began its invasion of Crimea in February of 2014, which would make this a 10-year war. I'm Jude Brewer, and this is The Process. Let's rewind a little further. It's December 11th, 2013. 25-year-old father, Ivan Sidor, is sounding the ancient alarm, ringing the bells of St. Michael's Cathedral. This is the first time the church has rang all of its bells to warn of an attack since the Mongols invaded Kiev in the 13th century. The bells can be heard across the capital, and they ring for hours as hundreds of thousands of protesters mobilize, the national anthem blaring on repeat, while riot police, known as the Berkut, carry out a violent assault on Ukrainian civilians in an effort to provoke them. This has started out as a peaceful rally in response to President Yanukovych's decision not to sign the European Union Association Agreement, which would have been a big step away from Moscow and the Customs Union. Putin still believed Ukraine should be a part of Russia, ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And despite independent polls showing more than 45% of Ukrainians supported integration with the West, President Yanukovych backed out of the EU deal and turned to Russia for financial assistance. More than 50,000 Ukrainian people marched to the Maidan, the large square in downtown Kiev, peacefully calling for Yanukovych to resign and the government to be dismantled. The protesters were of all ages. Doctors, nurses, psychologists, computer programmers, war veterans, students, even ultranationalists and extremist groups from the margins of Ukrainian society were present. No matter how these protesters might have disagreed on other issues, they had all come together peacefully. Six days later, the Burkut surrounded the peaceful camp launching pepper spray, stun grenades, and tear gas, kicking the protesters with their boots and dragging them across the cobbled square. Dozens of people were carried to makeshift medical centers with broken bones, bloody gashes, concussions, and chemical burns. Others were taken away by ambulance. This was state-sponsored violence. And 11 days after that, Yanukovych's riot police tried again, attacking the protesters in what became a 10-hour siege. In a way, this is a war. This is Kiev Post's news editor at the time, Katya Gachinska. It's a war for a new civilization in Ukraine, based on values such as solidarity, dignity, respect for an individual, and clear and equal rules of the game for all. This is no longer about Europe or integration. It's about who we are and where we want to go. This is about a nation being born, now and here, in Kiev. And it's both painful and awesome. The only place to truly feel the pain and grandeur of this national awakening is to stand right here on Maidan. This was now a revolution of dignity. And because the state would not be able to stop the revolutionaries on the Maidan, the state would carry out violence and intimidation toward activists and journalists. One activist would be roughed up, another would be stabbed multiple times. One protester would go missing for a week, and his captors would pound nails through his hands and then leave him for dead in the freezing cold. One reporter would be dragged out of his car by masked men and shot in the chest. That same shot would be heard by journalist Christopher Miller just one block away as he was headed home from the office. I found myself in these situations and learned as I went how to behave in these situations. I don't think it's all wrong place, wrong time. Journalists reviewed as enemies of the state 
by the pro-Russian regime of President Viktor Yanukovych. People would often travel in small groups or at least pairs, um, never alone, and especially after dark, because the security services and police were scooping up people off the street. But according to Chris, being an American granted him an extra level of security. Because we carry that blue passport that says the United States of America, you know, they're less likely to do physical harm to me. But that doesn't necessarily mean he was free from being a target of intimidation or surveillance. I've been followed. I've had my phones tapped. I've had uh, wires in my apartments. I've come home to some strange messages left around for me. Whereas a Ukrainian journalist and activist on the Maidan would not have the level of protection that an American journalist like Christopher Miller would. They, they can't make a phone call to the U.S. Embassy and, and ask for help, and they can't be evacuated from the country if they're under pressure. Christopher Miller had been living in Ukraine for nearly four years at the time, but he had only been actively working as a reporter for the English-language Kiev Post for one year. I do a lot better with my personal security than I did then. You know, I never set out to be a conflict reporter or a protest you know, reporter or a war correspondent. Christopher has now been reporting from Ukraine for a little over a decade, which is covered meticulously in his book, The War Came to Us. But as he told me, and as he has said many times to many others, this career path was not a goal of his. I never set out to cover a revolution or an uprising. Right. Uh, you know, reporting on these protests were uh, a first for me. Uh, you, you know, my, my early days in journalism here were working for Oregon Business Magazine, <laughs> and it was uh, a very, uh, you know, mellow time comparatively. That's Chris during a Q&A last fall at Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon, an event that would bring things full circle for Chris. This was the very city where he was born and raised and attended college at Portland State University, the same college where he would attend a class taught by author Deborah Gwartney, who would eventually become his conversation partner for the Q&A at Powell's Books, more than 15 years later. I remember back then how we would have lots of conversations about your yearning to see the world and um, how you wanted to stretch beyond Portland, Oregon. And we talked about journalism a lot, but I remember just that, this great curiosity in you, a, a, a quiet determination. So it doesn't surprise me at all that this has all come to pass. I met with Chris in person before and after his Portland Powell's event, since that's where I live. But when we spoke one-on-one, -on -one, both times he was at his apartment in central Kiev. These days, journalists aren't as worried about threats from the state. They are worried about threats from Russia and covering the conflict uh, from the front lines in the south and the east of the country, you know, where we all have to suit up in our bulletproof helmets and vests and carry tourniquets and medical kits. Um, you know, the, the danger now is the errant mortar or the targeted drone attack or the carpet bombing using cluster munitions uh, or artillery duels, um, landmines, that type of thing. It was generous of Chris to chat with me on two separate occasions, and at the end of our first conversation, I could hear air raid sirens in the background. Oh, shit. Well, there you go. Air raid, air raid sirens. All right, man, please, best, best of luck. Please stay safe. Thank you. Looking forward to the next chat. You bet, brother. Take care. All right. See you, G. It's a question that seems like an obvious one, and maybe even a dumb one to ask someone why they get into their line of work, especially when their line of work is something that involves danger. But of course, people want to know why anyone would do something that could injure them or even kill them. I had a very blue collar family. Father is a machinist, mother worked in education. Chris went into journalism around the age of 21, got a few years of local reporting under his belt, but he could feel himself outgrowing the Portland indie music scene, writing about craft beer, city politics, and naked bike rides. But there weren't many journalism jobs available, and the Great Recession had just hit. And so I looked at the Peace Corps as a sort of contingency plan. I thought, okay, I'll continue applying for jobs in journalism, but if nothing happens, I'll do the Peace Corps. Why the Peace Corps? Well, it would offer him a foreign adventure, which seemed like a pretty good escape. But Chris also had an uncle he was very close with, and his uncle had worked in the Peace Corps in the late 90s, when Chris was just a teenager. Uh, we're actually very close in age. He's not all that much older than me. And so when he had gone in the late 90s to Ecuador, we, we kept in touch and, and were pen pals throughout his experience. That pen pal relationship, along with his blue collar upbringing, a burgeoning travel bug, 
and a recession that wasn't doing young journalists any favors made for the perfect catalyst to send Chris halfway around the globe. So I went into the recruitment office, filled out the application. They accepted me very quickly. The Peace Corps' invitation was for 27 months abroad in Ukraine, which Chris felt woefully unprepared for. He didn't speak Russian or Ukrainian, and aside from geography or history lessons in school, his closest familiarity with Ukraine was the board game Risk, which, as any seasoned Risk player would know, Ukraine holds a key place on the map in the pursuit of world domination. Ten months later, Chris would be getting on a plane headed for Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, with 76 other American volunteers. You just took it on. This was going to be what you were going to do. And, and with great spirit, you thought, I'm going to get to know this place. I'm going to get to know this country. And that's what you, that's what you did. Chris was headed to Kiev for training, but that's not where he would be officially assigned. He wouldn't be spending time in any regional capital, nothing like the Crimean Peninsula or the Carpathian Mountains. Instead, they would assign him to Ukraine's industrial east in a landlocked city within the Donbass region. If you're not familiar with the Donbass, it shares a border with Russia and would eventually become a primary place of conflict in the years to come. I came in very open-minded, not knowing anything about the country or the people. Chris arrived in Bakhmut in 2010, and for most of the next two years, he would be the one and only American living there. There was an older group of people who were still a bit skeptical of Westerners at the time, Americans in particular. They still had very much in their mind this, you know, uh, kind of Soviet era or post-Soviet era idea of, of the West and what we thought of them and even memories of the Cold War. And while they weren't overly welcoming, once Chris got to know them, they would be really open and show concern for him, bringing him home-cooked meals and wondering why his American girlfriend was not with him and why didn't he have a Ukrainian girlfriend keeping him fed. I would get invited to a lot of parties, birthday parties, wedding parties, holidays. And part of it was because they were interested in me as an American. And, and part of it was because they also felt this obligation to invite the outsider who didn't really know anybody. The party atmosphere helped him cement a lot of relationships with people, many he is still close friends with today. It allowed me also to practice my Russian. While Chris had studied Russian during his first three months in Kiev, he had trouble deciphering the words that people were speaking to him. My, my friends would joke with me that, you know, Chris doesn't really speak Russian, but after a drink or two, he does. That was the case for a while. I really struggled to learn Russian. It's not an easy language. It also didn't help that many residents spoke Serzhik, a mashup of the Russian and Ukrainian languages. But, you know, you get a beer or two in you, or if you're at a birthday party, oftentimes it would be cognac or vodka. And, you know, your lips are a little looser, your, you know, your inhibitions are lowered, and, and you're just kind of a little bit more relaxed and comfortable, and you set aside those concerns of, well, am I, am I speaking correctly? Is this the right way to say this? And you just communicate. The first close friend Chris made was Igor. Chris and Igor were the same age, born three weeks apart from Portland to Ukraine, and they would take walks from the park together, drinking beer. Igor called these walking beers. And during their walking beers, they would learn about one another, where they had studied, where they had lived, where they had worked. Both of us at the time were, were trying to learn each other's languages better, speak them better, communicate sort of a, a higher level than either of us had in our foreign languages before. So yeah, he and I spent a lot of time together. Igor worked at Bakhmut City Hall as an elections official, but like many young Ukrainians at the time, Igor was politically apathetic. He would call Chris and invite him over to the office where he kept bottles of Ukrainian cognac beneath his desk, and they would drink. Eager loves a good party. That guy would go all night, and he was always the one more drink guy, and it would be 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., and he would say, how about one more drink? I often would say yes. But then after a while, after a few of those experiences, waking up the next day feeling terrible, I, I finally started to tell him, no, 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 man, I've just, I've just got to go. Igor and Chris had a drinking ritual where they would toast and laugh and then toast again. To work, to friendship, to love, to women, to the future. Toasting is a big part of the culture here. Weddings, birthdays, you're expected to give toast. 
As Chris writes in his book, Ukrainians love a good party and seem to take advantage of every opportunity to partake of one. Every week, it felt like there was a new celebration to the point that Chris had trouble keeping track. In addition to the usuals like Christmas, New Year's, or Independence Day, there were professional holidays like Journalist Day, Airborne Forces Day, Metal Workers Day, Food Industry Workers Day. You get the point. This was a holdover from Soviet times, or as Igor would explain it to Chris, we can't know what will come tomorrow, so we live for today. Why not celebrate and have a party? Maybe there will be no tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we in the United States are now investing billions and billions of dollars uh, in the form of uh, financial assistance, military assistance. And so I thought, you know, who's the best person to tell the story? Right. Writing this, I really thought, you know, I, I'll be your narrator, your vehicle for this. Mm-hmm. I'll take you around on my bicycle through the steppe of the Donbass, mm-hmm. through the revolution in Kiev, mm-hmm. to the front lines of, of Crimea and the Donbass. But along the way, you're going to meet all of the people I met who helped form my perspective of the country and of Europe. During his 27 months in the Peace Corps, Chris's primary assignment was teaching at a small village school. But by the time the new school year had arrived, Chris was becoming more interested in the complexities of Ukraine's media and politics, such as Ukraine's wild 90s, following their independence after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the rise of press freedom. So in 2013, shortly after the new year, Chris and his American girlfriend were now married, living in Kiev together, as he started working as a reporter for the English language Kiev Post. And within a year, he would find himself covering a revolution. In a way, this is a war. It's a war for a new civilization in Ukraine. This is no longer about Europe or integration. It's about who we are and where we want to go. When these riot police came out and brutally attacked protesters, sparking battles between the two sides, it it was shocking. But to be honest, I think I was very naive in that moment and didn't fully grasp the threat and the danger. I was struck by an object. It It was a smoke canister. And I do describe in the book being carried away by medics and having them douse my eyes with, with, with milk and water um, and trying to, to get my, my, my airway open and, and, and helping me um, to breathe. I think me being naive in that moment, mm-hmm. that kept me going. Mm-hmm. I think after that, it was you know, really feeling like I needed to be there. Early on February 22nd, 2014, As the revolutionaries would not accept anything less than Yanukovych being ousted from government, President Yanukovych would flee the city, reportedly taking with him billions of dollars in cash and collectibles. Protesters would climb the walls of his compound and storm through, where they would find a horde of extravagant purchases, too many to list here, including a boat hanger, an exotic zoo, dozens of collector cars, and even a nude portrait of Yanukovych himself. They also found damning documents, such as receipts for his over-the-top spending habits, as well as a blacklist that included the names of people that Yanukovych labeled his enemies, like journalists and activists who had been chased down, beaten, and left for dead. And what became of Yanukovych? Well, he was secretly extracted and delivered to Russia by his best friend, Vladimir Putin. How do you say the phrase that is tattooed on your body, the right, the truth? Would you call that uh, writing for the truth and just the truth in itself being sort of a higher calling that pushes you through? Yeah, I think especially in this war where there is there are so many untruths that are that are pushed and, and blatant disinformation, particularly coming from the Russian side. Putin was furious about what had happened on the Maidan, and he did whatever he could to spread lies about the activists ignoring that a majority of them were doctors, nurses, psychologists, computer programmers, students, instead focusing more on the small amount of extremist groups who were present, citing their presence as the rise of Nazism in Kiev. Russia sort of cherry-picks these things, and, and, and there's always this sort of... I mean, sometimes Russia just completely makes things up out of thin air. Other times what it does is it finds these tiny, tiny little kernels of, of truth or something that is real, and then it 
completely manipulates them and blows them uh, you know out of proportion or, or to extreme proportions and and makes it seem as though and at least in the case of you know ukraine being a fascist country it looks at this organization i'll use svoboda as an example because you brought it up and it is mentioned in the context of the revolution and its leader being one of the protest leaders because of his background and his ultranationalism and fascism they're able to use this person who was elected to parliament but still was vastly in the i mean hugely in the minority i mean really in the minority to say well look this has to be the case because this person exists i'm going to ask the obvious question here for anyone who might not understand putin's motives why lie why make things up for so long ukraine has felt to so many like it's this far off distant place you know somewhere in the post-soviet space but in so many ways it is not post-soviet right historically it might be but right now it is in many ways so much more technically progressive than we are in the united states so many people speak english so many ukrainians now have traveled out of their country the internet has helped greatly to connect ukraine with the rest of the world it feels very much like europe and the western world which is a problem for someone like Putin who has been trying to get Ukraine back under his control. A Western-minded Ukraine is his biggest threat. And instead of simply marching Russian troops over the border and officially declaring war, Putin settles in for the long haul and begins with manipulating the minds of Ukrainians closest to Russia's border. Many people were spoon-fed this Russian propaganda through Russian television, which was beamed into a vast majority of televisions and households in eastern Ukraine um, for all of those many years prior to uh, Russia's invasion in 2014. Eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region, where Chris had spent his first two years learning, teaching, and making friends. Propaganda played on their televisions. Or their newspapers, um, you know, that would put out a, more of a, a Moscow-friendly message or an anti- uh, NATO, anti-American, anti-Western message. How is this possible? Could it not be avoided? The, the, the media sphere here still is, um, to a great extent, but was even to a greater extent a decade ago, owned by powerful oligarchs, all of whom have their own agenda and would use, would, would buy up these television channels and use them essentially as their own weapons to attack other political nemeses or business enemies. And some of these oligarchs who were more friendly toward Russia would beam in Russian language and Russian programming. Particularly to the south and the east of the country where a majority of, of Ukrainians' first languages spoken was Russian. Ukrainians were being told lies about their own country's revolution, that it was a fascist takeover, and that the best option for Ukraine would be to sacrifice its independence and become a part of Russia. And in 2014, within days of helping Yanukovych flee to Russia, Putin would begin his illegal occupation and annexation of Crimea. For the next seven years, Putin would turn the Crimean Peninsula into a militarized zone, all while broadcasting his anti-NATO, anti-American, anti-Western propaganda into the households of Eastern Ukraine. For any journalist who is watching this unfold, the oncoming decade was looking pretty bleak. Increasingly so. I'm very, very worried about the truth and, and the actual truth. I'm talking like facts, like things that should be indisputable. Because the cost of the truth in one corner of the world is not a remote issue. Their twisted version of the truth is out there and it's insidious and it is not only damaging within the territory of Russia and Ukraine, but it's bled over into our own society in the United States. I see it there. What are your understandings of the way Russia is creating propaganda against Ukraine? The Russian has a huge propaganda machine. I mean, not just against Ukraine, but you know, lots of operating here against us. It's been going on for a long time. I'm not sure exactly, but I know they keep a lot of stuff like secret in Russia. So like 
they try to keep the people as like unknown or like out of the know about a whole bunch of stuff like that goes on. The yeah, they isolate them from a whole bunch of information. What is your understanding of the kind of propaganda that Russia is creating against the Ukraine? From what I've heard, it's basically making them seem like they're the problem and that Russia's actually helping you know, make it better. Make it seem like it's justified. So they kind of tried to make it seem like they asked for them to be there instead of what was really going on, and they're just trying to invade and take the land that's there. What is the story you think Russia is telling its people in the world? I think it's just showing their power. Russia is very, very good at propaganda and turning, like, a lot of conservatives here in America. That's why a lot of them tend to be pro-Russia. Do you know who Tucker Carlson is? No. Okay. I don't. Sorry. Yes, I know who Tucker Carlson is. He's worked for Fox News. He just interviewed Putin. He's conservative. It's kind of a douchebag, in my opinion. I can't really stomach Tucker Carlson. What's your take on that kind of propaganda? I think it's not inherently propaganda that he, you know, put Vladimir Putin on the air like that, but I think the way he handled it um, certainly was. It needs to be countered. You know, the Fairness Doctrine went away a long time ago. Some of these stations are pretty much just go fact-free. It's not a good thing in the long run. Like Putin right now, it's just a short little man who wants to show his power and what he can do in the world. Are either of you aware of who Alexei Navalny was? Um, I don't think so. No, I have no idea. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Not one bit. Do you happen to know who Alexei Navalny was? Yeah, he was one of the um, uh, opponents, right? The biggest opponents of Putin. He was like a, a big not supporter, how do you say it? A non-supporter? Mm, a dissident? A uh, dissident, yeah. Uh, he was a dissident in uh, Russia. Probably the leading, leading one. They just... Uh, you know, basically eliminated him. I've seen a few things, of course, that he got a heart attack or I'm not quite sure if he's been poisoned or anything, but yeah, it was a, a definite murder, I think, yeah. I do wish I was like a little more informed so that I could have a better conversation about it. Yeah. But I think it's good that you kind of uh, keep tabs on at least what people on the street have to think. The horrors of Bucha was the first time I became more than peripherally aware of the war in Ukraine. And we're talking mass graves, bodies with their hands tied behind their backs, tortured, raped, mutilated. They were old and young, men and women and children, murdered outside of the factory buildings, their schools, their homes, their very own yards. That was in 2022. So the revolution of dignity and the illegal annexation of Crimea and the subsequent grueling seven years of violence in the Donbass region had already gone down. So, when reading Chris's book, I kept thinking, what could the U.S. have done differently in 2014, when it was obvious how Putin was preparing for this eventual invasion, playing the long game, destabilizing Ukraine from outside borders, where he has the most influence over people, using that proximity against them? What more could have been done by the U.S. and the EU or NATO and the U.N.? Well, this wasn't Russia's first invasion. There was the Georgia invasion as well. And we knew in 2008 that Russia and Vladimir Putin had ambitions to bring former Soviet republics back into Moscow's fold and to control them and had this desire to, an ambition to recreate something resembling the Soviet Union, the collapse of which he famously said was the biggest disaster of the 20th century. And I don't think that we in the West and our leadership in the United States took that invasion of Georgia seriously. Not many people believed that Russia would do this again, but it got away with it, with essentially a slap on the wrist. Okay, so the Georgia invasion happens in 2008, and not many people take it seriously. What about Russia's invasion in 2014? Were they still not taking it seriously? The Obama administration was caught off guard. They saw it when it was already too late. They couldn't respond militarily and they did not provide military support like they are now to Ukraine at the time because the Obama administration feared a serious escalation if they were to do so. and. Ukraine had a military that had been whittled down to almost nothing 
after years of neglect. Thanks to ex-president Yanukovych, who had stolen so much before Putin helped him escape, Ukraine now only had $10,000 to spend for the whole country. So if the Obama administration had sent Ukraine weapons... You know, where would these weapons have gone? The Ukrainians at the time and the interim president, um, Alexander Turchinov, he did want more support from the West. Uh, he wanted stronger sanctions. He would have liked some type of military support at the time. But he was very clear that when he asked for more support, he was told no. And he was also told when he asked what the Ukrainians should do, should should be, you know, stand up and fight, the Obama administration told him, stand down. It could lead to serious escalation and you're not, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but, you know, Ukraine is not in a position to fight back if Russia decides to escalate. What's even more frustrating is the 1994 trilateral statement. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 91, Ukraine had the world's third largest nuclear arsenal. And the trilateral statement was a signed deal. Ukraine had agreed to transfer their nuclear warheads to Russia for elimination in exchange for security guarantees from the United States. But when Oleksandr Turchinov, Ukraine's interim president, had asked the United States for help, those security guarantees were not provided. Do you think if Ukraine had not given up nuclear weapons, things could have been different? Maybe, maybe. I mean, the Ukrainians certainly think so. The Ukrainians believe that Russia violated the Budapest Memorandum, and also that the West did, that the United States did not hold up at its end of the bargain in saying that it would come to Ukraine's aid when and if uh, any of the signatories, Russia in particular, broke its agreement. And the Ukrainians really do believe that if they had nuclear weapons, that Russia would not have invaded, that that would have been enough to deter Russia. I'm not 100% convinced of that, simply because the amount of nuclear weapons that Russia has is, is and would have been significantly greater than what Ukraine had. But plenty of them believe that it would have changed things. And I think that it certainly would have had an impact on Putin's decision making. And, and maybe, maybe what we would see uh, in terms of an invasion or an attack would have looked different. Okay. Setting aside nuclear weapons, the 2014 invasion happens. The U.S. tells Ukraine to stand down and not further escalate. What can the U.S. do to help a country that is being invaded? By the time Russian troops were spanning out across the Crimean Peninsula, I think it was too late at that point to do anything to stop it. But over the following years, the U.S. could have done a lot more to perhaps build a much stronger Ukrainian military, even stronger than what it was just prior to the full-scale invasion in February 2022. It could have done more in terms of training. It could have provided lethal weaponry and arms and, and ammunition long before February 2022, instead of ramping up th those things post-invasion. And that could have, and we don't know, I mean, hindsight is 2020, what it could have, should have, right? But it, you know, that, that might have uh, deterred Russia from carrying out a full-scale invasion. It might not. It might not have. Um, Vladimir Putin might have gone ahead with it anyway. He, you know, he he is thinking about his legacy, and you know, Ukraine is his biggest problem in his mind. He, you know, he he doesn't believe that this country exists, that his people exist, and may have been dead set on seeing it destroyed. I'd say most Russians are probably tired of fighting over there and sending their families to fight in Ukraine. From what I've learned, it's basically a lot of wars start from like invading people and I'm worried that it might start another world war and that it's going to cause more problems for everyone else. A lot of oligarchs who I think are clinging on to when it was the Soviet Union and like these old school like kind of like how here like the old school like conservatives won't don't want to get out of politics and they're like clinging on to it. I don't know I'm not uh, really fond of the way members of Congress are handling it. If Ukraine falls, then, you know, what's next? Like, Russia supposedly, like, fucked with our elections. It's like, at the end of the day, we should come together as Americans, no matter what side you're on. So it's like, you learn that this country is basically attacking our democracy is what that is. And you're just like, whatever, because you don't like who won the election. That's like, 
not treason, but it's treasonous leaning in its spirit. I'm just aware of how terrible it is out there because like in his world history class, so had, like there's different units because right now we're learning about World War One, World War Two, and stuff like that. But like the unit before that, it was just going over how like bad it is, like all the destruction, basically. You know, I'm not sure why, but I didn't start crying on and off from the book until the destruction of Malaysian 1-7. And then it just becomes this very personal book again, where you're sifting through wreckage and you get into the elderly left behind in their homes where they have no running water, no electricity. You have that 96 year old woman, Vera, who it's like she's lived through the second world war and now she's hearing exploding artillery at night. Those are moments I really had to set the book down cry, process it. You know, in this book, we meet many, many people. We meet many Ukrainian citizens. We meet them in their homes. We meet them in their basements as they're trying to survive. We meet them in hospitals. We meet a lot of Ukrainian soldiers, and we meet a, a good handful of pretty frightening Russians. Um, these people are not characters that, that very many of them come back to the book. The one character we know through this book is you. I hope your book gets studied, like seriously studied, because the first person elements of your book, they don't detract from what is otherwise a very solid, comprehensive journalistic feat. And I would say the first person enhances the voice of the people. You know, it kind of goes against the grain of the journalist to write in first person. So how did that feel? Uh, strange, yeah. strange. I mean, I don't do it in my day job. It uh -huh. absolutely goes against everything that, yeah. that I practice on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But when I saw the PTSD chapter coming up, I kind of thought it was going to focus more on you because I thought you have experienced so much firsthand, but also third, you know, second degrees route through other people. Uh, yeah, it felt, it, you know, at times it kind of felt a little icky almost, mm -hmm. you know, um, writing so much about yourself and having the, mm -hmm. the eye very present. Mm -hmm. I don't think I was quite comfortable or, or ready to really talk about how this has affected me personally in the book. Maybe because I didn't want that to be a distraction. This is a book about this place and this amazing series of events, very troubling, very dark and hard for us to read. Um, and it's about this one man who lives through it for, for over 10 years. I am curious if you have seen treatment or what that what has worked for you, and you don't have to get into that, but if 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 you'd like to. This is a violent, you don't hold back on the violence of this book. And there are many times that we see awful, horrible things that that, that are hard to, mm. to, to face, and you had to face them. I, myself, I don't see a therapist. I do have a lot of really good friends and my wife is a very good listener and an, an incredible partner. If I, if I have a day and it's a bit slow and today actually has been a bit slow, I will, you know, do, do some laundry and, and clean, clean my apartment here in Kiev and go for a long walk and, and do something normal. Um, and I say normal in the sense of, you know, if, if war weren't happening, what would I be doing? because Ukrainians live in, I mean, their normality right now is war and they have to balance both. Awareness 24 seven, it's exhausting. I can compartmentalize very, very well. And I also view my job sort of in the way that a doctor or a surgeon might, or someone who views people at their worst quite often. But there are, there are times where, you know, it's hard to be that disconnected or impossible, impossible to be that disconnected. There are definitely moments, and there are a couple in the book that I think I mentioned and you know, sort of struggling with. But yeah, I, I uh, this is all to say that, you know, I don't know how to assess my own mental health, but I feel all right. I'm glad you feel all right. <laughs> it's 2.22 in the morning. 2.22 a.m. And this is the fourth air raid siren of the day. We're not getting a lot of sleep in Kiev tonight. 
because Russian missiles are in the air somewhere, or drones, and heading toward the capital. The fact that we're here celebrating this book and your devotion and to this place and your commitment to this place is really a testament to you. And um, most of all, I just want to say congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And um, maybe we could open it up for questions now. Yeah. Chris has toured all around the world, reading from his book, answering questions from total strangers. Do I have to hold it? Emily wearing her Vishivanka. <laughs> yes. A familiar face. Emily, who lived in the very far west of Ukraine and has been following his work for several years. Or even if it wasn't a familiar face, they would share similar experiences. Hey, Chris, we're um, also RPCVs from Ukraine. Yeah? I think, yeah, I think you overlapped with my husband. We actually met there. Ukraine is for lovers. Uh, about six months, I think you overlapped. That's I just fantastic. missed you. Where yeah. were your sites? Uh, Nikolai, Mikolaev, excuse Nikolaev, me. yeah. Both of you? Oh, great. Yeah, we actually have a friend in common, Alona Gorbatko. Yeah, yeah. Ah, Alona's great. Oh, yeah. she's- yeah, yeah, I took a picture and sent it to her and I told her that it's a packed house. Excellent, um, yeah. Mikolaev is in a tough spot right now. It's, yeah. It's been pounded by by missiles since the very beginning yeah. of this thing. And it's, it's in the south of the country. Yeah. yeah, the school I um, worked at that I served at has been pretty, pretty oh, badly sorry damaged. So, yeah. um, you know, but I guess I want to shift gears a little bit. And, you know, I was leafing, leafing through the first part of the book and noticing that you were telling a lot of stories that add a lot of depth and dimension. Because the first act of Chris's book explores the regular everyday life of Ukrainians outside of revolutions and war, she's wondering what stories of joy come to mind for him? Something funny or some, like a misunderstanding or just those funny things that happen during service that... <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, the one that I like to say, I, I think probably my favorites are, are included in the book, but this will resonate with you, I'm sure. I mean, I was in a relationship at the time. My, my wife is here, but she we were not married yet, and she was not living in Ukraine with me. But as a 20-something, uh, man living alone. I had a lot of very worried older women neighbors who were absolutely certain that I would not be able to take care of myself. I would starve, die, and then they would have the death of an American on their hands and the government would come for them and they'd get locked up and that would be it. And so they made sure I was extremely overfed. <laughs> And it got it got worse over the summer because it was a really hot summer in 2010, and I was riding my bicycle every day, and I lost a lot of weight. And I, you you may have had this experience, but I actually ate a lot, but I, I still kept losing weight. I lost about 15 pounds. I was about 15 pounds lighter than I am. I'm not a particularly like big boned person, uh, and and they were watching watching me sort of in their minds whittle away. I was in great shape. I felt fantastic. But, you know, there would always be a, you know, knock on the door and it would be Nadia and she'd come over and say, you know, I've got a pot of borscht for you. And then, you know, the next day somebody else would come over with Vareniki and somebody else would come over with, with something. And uh, one time someone came over with a bowl of Holodietz. Holodietz is this meaty jello. It's cold, it jiggles. The texture is very strange. And um, God bless her for, for making this for me, but it sat in my fridge. And she came over two days later and just waltzed in, opened the refrigerator to put something else in and noticed I had not taken a bite. And uh, she was, it, it took a while to win back her, her, uh, her, her trust and, um, and to get her back on my side. But I had to explain that, you know, I, I love everything else. There's just this one thing that isn't really for me. But you know, it's because I'm a foreigner. Like I'm not quite yours yet. And then eventually they would say, you know, oh, Chris, you know, Nashi, ours. Remember Chris's first friend he made while living in Bakhmut? Igor. They would have their walking beers together and make toasts to all things. Now a detail that has stuck with me is a small detail from Igor's life when he was studying in university, living in Kiev, working as a bartender. The bar that Igor worked at was built out of an old bomb shelter from the Second World War. Or as Chris described it, the memory of the war still lingered. 
bomb shelters have been transformed into businesses, pubs, cafes, and strip clubs. So thinking of a city that had transformed these war shelters into places where people could eat and drink and share laughter together, to transform suffering in a palpable way. It saddened me to think that war had returned and was no longer just a distant memory. I want peace for Ukraine. So at the end, you, you returned to Bakhmut, your, your, the, the town where you started as a Peace Corps volunteer. You return there and it's become maybe the most severe of the war ravaged yeah. areas in the Donbas. I'd like to keep the book's end sacred for when you read it, as familiar faces like Igor will reappear, but it's important to mention that Bakhmut no longer resembles the home that Chris had discovered. Well, the hardest thing was trying to figure out how to end a book when it is quite literally about a war that is ongoing. Yes. At, at the time that I was wrapping up the book, I was reporting on the Battle of Bakhmut, which was the longest, mm -hmm. you know, most brutal grinding battle of, mm. of the war. Yes. And I was watching this city that was my adopted second home be destroyed in real time. Yes. And I was there looking at the street that I lived on mm. and unable to pass a certain point because there were now barriers and uh, anti-tank devices and defenses yes. um, and a giant hole in the side of, of one, one part of the building and, and soldiers on the streets and then suddenly an air raid alert and then an airstrike and you know my, my team and I had to take cover in a basement. You know, what, what, what type of devastation Russia has brought to the country, right? I mean, nothing, mm -hmm. me arriving in this quiet, peaceful city that nobody had ever heard of, that was not a dateline on any front, uh, front page, um, now to, to suddenly being almost a household name. I mean, I was turning on from Kiev. I was watching MSNBC or CNN or opening the New York Times and suddenly seeing Bakhmut in every dateline and, 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 you know, coming out of the mouths of every major Western news anchor. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it was happening because I, you know, this was just the place where I was riding my bicycle through yeah. sunflower fields and having beers in the park right. with friends. And, and so and I thought, you know, yeah. everybody's, everybody knows about this city now. Yes. And so if, if, I, if I end it here, uh, no matter how I end it, there's, there's not going to be closure because right. this war is grinding on. Right. But if I end where I began, at the very least, you would be able to see just, just how, how, how different things had, had been. And as the tradition goes, I will ask Christopher Miller to read aloud the words of the late Leonard Cohen. You're dying, but you don't have to cooperate so enthusiastically with the process. <laughs> You're dying, but you don't have to cooperate so enthusiastically with the process. I mean, I don't know, the first thing, the first thing that comes to mind, I suppose, is, I mean, thinking about the, um, the many captures, abuses, tortures conducted by Russians and their proxies on Ukrainian captives. I just have so many images of that in my mind, having interviewed so many people about what they have gone through and seeing so much of that in the last year and a half and a lot of that in 2014 as well and thinking about how many of them who lived and did not resisted really, really strongly resisted and did not give in to what the Russians were, were after. That's what first comes to mind. Thank you. I, I want to give you a toast to the truth. <laughs> your, your green tea and the rest of my wine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to the truth. Okay, so what can you do to help Ukraine? What's something that doesn't cost you any money? Something that only takes you five minutes? StopWarInUkraine.com. They make it super easy to find your state representatives, your elected officials who are in charge of being your voice, and they even provide a letter template for you to copy and paste. StopWarInUkraine.com. 
There's also a link in the show notes. And when you recognize propaganda, talk about it, discuss it. It's that simple. Let's keep this conversation going. The full Powell's Books conversation between Chris and Deborah, plus the Q&A, will be available to listen at cooperatewiththeprocess.com. You can also find a link in the show notes for that. For over 50 years, Powell's Books has had the good fortune of hosting world-renowned authors in the Portland community. Without the passion of their employees and continued support from the community, opportunities like this and stores like theirs would not be possible. I could not have made this episode alone. John Fio created all the music you heard after listening to my raw conversations with Chris, and I just could not have written the script without first hearing what John created, so thank you, John. The street interviews you heard were conducted and recorded by Christopher Olin. My sincere thanks to Katya Gorchinska for her beautiful reading. Thank you to Phyllis Shelton from the Portland Peace Corps Association for answering my questions. And thank you to Emmy Bataglia Bloomsbury for reaching out to me and getting Chris's book in my hands in the first place. Also, thank you to Rachel Ewan, Deborah Gortney, and Kevin Samsel. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Alexei Navalny and the people of Ukraine. Slava Ukraini. process.